A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin and you would be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by Labour MP Stephen Timms as we look back at last week's autumn statement and look forward to the next 12 months and a potential general election. But before that, last week, the national populist leader, Geert Wilders, caused a stir by topping the poll in the Dutch elections. From Viktor Orban in Hungary to Georgia Maloney in Italy, via Germany, Spain, France, Belgium and Sweden, populist parties seem to be on the rise. They're expected to do well in 2024's elections, including the UK, where the Reform Party is on 9% in the polls, and in America, where Donald Trump may well become president again. So what is national populism? Well, the academics Roger Eatwell and Matthew Goodwin define it as an ideology which prioritises the culture and interests of the nation and which promises to give voice to a people who feel that they have been neglected, even held in contempt by distant and often corrupt elites. Well, national sovereignty and opposition to immigration are certainly driving factors for populism. The human desire to belong is combined with the fear of those who are different from us and a growing insecurity as we feel the global effect of wars, climate change and pandemic. As increasing numbers of people around the world are displaced from their homes, a minority are moving into Europe. The UK takes a small share by comparison. But new figures show that our net migration in the year to June 2023 was 672,000 people, with 53,500 of them arriving on small boats across the Channel. Meanwhile, the suspicion of elites seems justified by the constant stream of stories about abuse, dishonesty and bad behaviour of mainstream politicians. Most of Reform UK support comes from disillusioned Conservative voters, hence the government's desperation, it would appear, to succeed in deporting migrants to Rwanda to stop the votes. There are allegations in the weekend press that Reform was offering money to Conservative MPs in return for them switching allegiance to their party, whilst Nigel Farage, currently in the celebrity jungle, is gleefully stoking rumours that he will be the next Conservative leader. So how should Christians approach these events? Well, look, it is perfectly valid to have strong beliefs about immigration and to take different sides of the debate whilst also wanting the best for our society. Such debates are important and inevitable. Indeed, they're key to our democracy, especially as elections approach and parties seek to shore up existing support and attract new voters. The acid test is surely when a line of argument ceases to think about certain groups of people as human beings with inherent worth and dignity, but reduces them to a problem, a threat or a danger to be defeated. We shouldn't be naive. There are criminals and miscreants among immigrants, just as there are amongst the existing populace. But we should not dehumanise them as a shapeless mass invading our shores. One particular danger for Christians is that populist politicians often use the rhetoric of Christian nationalism. This talks of employing strong leadership to preserve and promote Christian values, but it treats other faiths as a threat to our Christian heritage. It is based on culture rather than actual belief in Jesus Christ and implies that salvation and justification is achieved by winning elections and referendums, by legislation and even conquest. Christian nationalism, then, is false teaching 
It is graceless and legalistic, and it's a real threat. Christian nationalism was behind the storming of the US Capitol in 2021 that sought to overturn the presidential election results. Many Christians may feel that the liberal secularist approach of recent governments has failed, but surely Christian nationalism is not the answer. Many Christians are indeed patriotic for their nation. Some amongst my political tribe, left-leaning liberal Remainer types, might well get squeamish about patriotism, but I personally don't think we should. Yet we must see the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is a love of nation, the landscape, the cultures, the languages, the physical places, the people who live within our country. Nationalism has a habit of turning this love into a hostility towards others. Patriotism has an appropriately small view of a nation's importance. Yes, it is important. You have been placed where you are for good works and to make Jesus known. But at the end of days, every nation and tribe and tongue will bow down before Jesus on the throne, as Revelation 7 verse 9 tells us. The kingdom of God is above the coming and going of earthly kingdoms, which are here just for a blip on the timeline before they're gone again. So to place a national identity as ultimate is pointless idolatry. Nations make terrible, treacherous gods. But love for a nation and the people who live in it will spur us to work on its behalf and to seek the welfare of the city, as we hear in Jeremiah 29 verse 7. Who can help but be grieved by poverty or pollution, homelessness or unemployment, schools crumbling, prisons full to bursting, landscapes ruined when they see it in the nation they love? We need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves amidst false and extreme versions of supposedly Christian politics. Instead, let's return to the cross where Christ took all our anger, pain and brokenness onto himself and offered us his amazing grace in return. The gospel teaches us to forgive others because we've been forgiven and to seek justice with love and compassion. This is the kind of politics we are called to pursue. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest this week, the Labour MP for East Ham, Stephen Timms. Stephen, welcome. Good morning. Thank you, Tim. Very pleased to be here. It's great to have you with us. So I'm interested. Um, the Labour Party on well over 40 percent in the polls at the moment. People are assuming we might have a Labour government at some point in the next 12 months. What's it like to be a Labour MP at the moment? Well, it certainly feels much more hopeful for us than it has done for a very, very long time. But on the other hand, it's all very febrile, isn't it? And who knows what's going to happen in the course of the next 12 months. So I, I don't think anyone on our side is taking for granted that there will be um, a Labour government. We hope there will. And the prospects at the moment look encouraging. But, you know, we've had difficulties in our party around the, the recent vote mm. um, about Gaza, for example. So there's um, lots of hurdles and obstacles still to go. But it certainly looks hopeful at the moment. And I guess it is said that uh, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them, and the government's popularity is not great at the moment. One thing, of course, they had up their sleeve to attempt to try and shift the narrative, as we say, was last week's autumn statement delivered by Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, for those of us uh, who might not understand entirely, as a, a former uh, Treasury Minister, including being Chief Secretary to the Treasury and the Cabinet under... Uh, Tony Blair. Um, what is the difference between the autumn statement and then the budget, which happens in the spring? Well, there are always, in our arrangements, two major fiscal events in the year. One is 
the budget and the other is uh, the autumn statement and sometimes the timing of them varies a bit but mm. um, the budget is the main one and that's followed by a big finance bill when significant tax changes are legislated for and there's a parliamentary process around that the other one the one that happened last week mm. is less uh, substantial but is, is also very important and certainly there were some very significant things announced last week and um you know some it was a mixed bag um there isn't always a finance bill following an autumn statement. If there are some tax changes in it, then there does have to be. And given there were some tax changes last week, I think there will be. But um, it, it, whereas after a budget, there always is a, a major finance bill. And you obviously served as, as financial secretary to the Treasury, I think, three times, as well as being chief secretary to the Treasury sitting in cabinet the preparation that goes into uh, an autumn statement or a budget what what does that mean for for ministers such as yourself who are involved well your point about how many times i was a treasury minister let me just um tell you this that when i went back to the treasury i think on the third occasion yes. somebody said to me mr timms it's very unusual for ministers to come back to the treasury as many as three times but it isn't a record he said because gladstone came back four <laughs> uh, and then i came back a fourth time so i, think <laughs> I can i can claim to have uh, although gladstone's various tenures were a bit longer than mine well, you could, um, if labor come back to power you could seize the record well indeed indeed <laughs> um sorry carry on the uh so there's a huge amount of effort that goes into each budget and each autumn statement. There's a team of Treasury officials that does nothing other than prepare for those events, prepare the documentation for them um, for weeks, in, indeed months, uh, leading up to the events. And, you know, the reality is now that the autumn statement is over, um, I imagine the the team at the treasury will be turning its attention to prepare for the budget and there'll be weeks and weeks of work before um the the, the budget of the announcements and they're very very focused on, on on doing that so a huge amount of work and effort goes into them and uh, every line that appears in the budget documentation is exhaustively thought about and and, and checked and considered. So it, it's a, a massive undertaking for the Treasury and the officials in the Treasury each time one of these statements gets made. You now fulfil a, a really important role. You chair the Work and Pension Select Committee and therefore oversee the impact or um, scrutinise the impact of some of these big financial decisions. From your current perspective, then, how, how does the autumn statement um, impact upon those who are affected under the Department of Work and Pensions, uh, Aegis? Well, I was very relieved about two things that were included in the autumn statement. One was that working age benefits are going to be uprated properly in line with inflation and each year the September rate of inflation is used for the following April. So next April, 
uh, working age benefits will be uprated by 6.7%. And there'd been lots of speculation in the run-up to the autumn statement that some pretext might be announced for uprating them by less than that, mm. uh, which would just have meant another real terms cut in the headline rate of Social Security. And, you know, at the moment, real terms Social Security levels are about the lowest they've been for 40 years, since the, the early Thatcher years. Mm. And that, I'm convinced, is a big part of the reason why we've got so many people depending on food banks at the moment. And, and, and really, the safety net isn't adequate at the moment to do the job that's needed. So I was relieved that that isn't going to get any worse. The other thing I was pleased about is that the local housing allowance um, is to be rebased next April at the 30th percentile of rents in each local area. And that is very helpful because it's been frozen for four years. It was put up to the 30th percentile at the start of the, the pandemic. That was a concession by the government at, at the time, although long overdue one, but it's been completely frozen since then. So housing support, even though rents have been rising sharply over the last three and a half years, housing support hasn't gone up at all. Mm. And, and in my constituency, what that has meant that quite a lot of working families just have not been able to afford the rent they're, they're mm. charged anymore, have become homeless, have thrown themselves on the local council, and the council has had an enormous bill for temporary accommodation. So I, I don't think this policy of freezing the local housing allowance um, is a, a good thing for the exchequer because it just shifts costs to a, a, a more expensive kind of spending elsewhere in the public sector. So I was very relieved about those. I mean, there were lots of things, however, that I was concerned about. One, I, I asked the chancellor, on the day of the autumn statement about the prospects for the household support fund. Now, for the last few years, uh, the, there's been about a billion pounds a year going to this thing called the household support fund. That goes to local councils and enables them to provide help for families who have got nowhere else to turn. And it's been very helpful that councils have had access to that funding. I asked the Chancellor whether that will be carried on into the new year. Uh, he said, yes, it would. But looking at the documentation, it looks as though, in fact, it isn't. I don't quite know why Jeremy Hunt answered that question in the way that he did, because that is not borne out by the, 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 the paperwork. So that's something to, uh, to, to follow up. Um, and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions is coming in front of the our select committee next week, and I'll ask him about that. So, you know, there are lots of things in there that um, that uh, I, I, I would query and be concerned about, but some of them, the, the, the kind of biggest things, I was relieved that rumours that we'd heard were not fulfilled. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're joined by Labour MP Stephen Timms discussing last week's autumn statement. So you've got great experience um, in the Treasury and outside of it, Stephen. Um, difficult question, but what's your overview of the country's current financial status? Is it healthy? Are there prospects? Could things be done better? I think we're in a pretty bad state at the moment. and I think it's going to take quite a big and long-term job of repair to put them right. I, you know, one obvious indicator of that, when I was a minister, those, all those times that I was in the Treasury, we had a rule that national debt should not exceed 40% of GDP. 
well now it's about 100 percent a massive massively increased debt compared with where where we were then and um you know lots of reasons for that of course the pandemic greatly increased the the national debt but but also i i think the the failures of conservative economic management over these uh 13 years have contributed a lot to the problem so george osborne when he was campaigning for election in 2010 promised to eradicate the deficit mm. in five years and he poo-pooed alistair darling's plans which were to halve the deficit in in five years well in the end um george osborne did not eradicate the deficit he just about halved it mm. um and 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 the whole approach taken to managing the economy in that time i think was very very damaging and you know liz truss made the point in her um campaigning that led to her brief tenure as prime minister that we we had a real problem about economic growth and i i i think all the excitement about Brexit over the last few years, all the energy in government has gone into securing Brexit and managing Brexit. And, and, and nobody really seems to be very interested in getting the economy growing again. The kind of things that Gordon Brown, when he was chancellor, was absolutely focused on the whole time, uh, coming up with ideas, devices, support to prompt the economy to grow that's what i think we have to do again but it's not going to happen overnight we'll need no. to focus on it for a long and sustained period and I, I i'm sure we can do it you know the, the repair job can be achieved but it's not going to be an easy one no so that begs the question really what room is there for a labor government or any any other government to do things differently well, th there certainly won't be room, and Rachel Reeves has been very clear about this, there won't be room for incoming government to spend vast amounts of extra money to begin with. It'll it'll require, there, there will be ch changes that can be made, but that it will require patient, long-term effort to restore proper growth to the UK economy, and that will then uh, allow us to start using the proceeds of, of growth to change things for the better as we as we want to but um it, it as i say it's it's going to take quite a while back to the politics of all this then Stephen. do you think that the autumn statement and what was in it gives any clues as to when the general election might be well various people were suggesting after the autumn statement that it seemed to make a may general election more likely the fact that there were tax cuts in there and and so on um and, and that may be true maybe uh, rishi sunak was wanting to keep his options open mm. i mean clearly there won't be a general election in may if the opinion polls are where they are at the moment um and so my assumption has generally been that we're more likely to have a general election towards the end of of, uh, of next year because why would the Conservatives go for an early election with their prospects looking not very positive um, as is the case at the moment? I, I don't think either of us are betting men, but I think if I was, my money be where yours is, as my for it's worth. Right. Well, I'm <laughs> reassured to hear that, Tim. Yeah. Um, so. Looking overall at how we manage the finances and lots of you know, politicians trading, um, exchanging views about what they have done and what they would do. From a Christian perspective, how do we balance our desire for generosity, for providing support for the vulnerable, 
with wisdom and prudence? How could we how could we do that better? Well, my view is that Social Security has got a job to do mm-hmm. and it's an important job. It's, it isn't really about generosity. It is an important part of how we manage our economy that people who, for whatever reason, aren't able to support themselves at the moment, get help to enable them to get through it. Mm-hmm. And my worry is that the that the level of the safety net at the moment is not adequate. And I think that causes all kinds of problems. For example, um, the think tank Bright Blue, which is, as the name implies, connected with the Tory party, um, gave evidence to our committee on this and suggested that the current very low level of universal credit, the headline rate of social security, one of the effects of that is to force people to get take the first job that comes across their radar, irrespective of whether it's suitable for them or whether they're suitable for, for the job. Mm. And, and they said that that is one of the reasons for the current UK productivity problem, because we've got so many people who've kind of been forced into jobs that really aren't suitable. If the social security safety net was a little bit more substantial, then people would have the opportunity to think, is this the right thing or should I wait for a couple more weeks and do do something else? So, you know, I, 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 as I say, I don't, I don't see it as being about generosity. I see, I see it as about being, is this, uh, the provision adequate for the important job that has to be done as part of a, a, a modern economy. And my worry is that at the moment it, it, it really isn't adequate. Well, that sounds a an open-ended but in, important way to end the conversation for now at least. Uh, Stephen, thanks very much for, for your service and for being with us and for being a really faithful witness. Thank you, Chip. Well, each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. Now, it might be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I would love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Now, this week, David in London has been in touch and asks this. What makes for a good politician? And is there a current good example of one? Wow, a short and excellent question, almost a googly and a difficult one to to tackle. What makes a good politician? I suppose from a Christian perspective, it's surely got to be one who understands that being a member of parliament or a minister or a prime minister is a temporary role that you have been given by the Lord and you are to do good in it and you are to uh, act humbly and uh, love mercy. So I think in, in that case, I suppose those politicians who take on a role and do so without it all being about them. Um, Those who seek to serve the community they've been elected to represent. Those who might seek to be faithful, even when and especially when it uh, goes against their own personal electoral interests. So I'm going to say, in terms of examples from a Christian perspective, I'm bound to pick out our friend Kate Forbes, uh, who was somebody who was uh, willing to potentially sacrifice her career. We'll see whether that's true or not in the long run, but was able to, certainly she disadvantaged herself by being faithful and upfront and truthful. I think she won people around to a large degree by doing that, even those who are not Christians. 
But let's think of people who have reached the top. And I think of Theresa May and Gordon Brown as two former prime ministers who I think have shown a commitment to duty to country and a concern for those who have the least in our society, the most vulnerable, um, in ways they didn't need to. They could have swanned off and earned a load more money uh, in their post-prime ministerial uh, lives than they appear to have done, and instead have acted with duty. I suppose in the end, we tend to only really know who the good politicians are when we look backwards. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. OK, well, let's end our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we are in a society where we can vote, uh, where we have relative freedom as Christians and indeed as regular citizens. Help us to value that freedom and help us to, whilst uh, loving and uh, holding in our prayers our leaders and potential leaders, nevertheless, um, let us also hold them to account. Let us as Christians not get swept up by those who would seek to appropriate Christianity for their own ends. Let's make sure that we focus upon our faith, which is um, which is a belief in Jesus, a belief in salvation that comes through uh, grace by faith. Um, let us uh, walk humbly with you and let us also uh, agree to disagree with those around us when we have different political points of view. Lord, the autumn statement is still working its way through and different departments and families and businesses will find their financial situations change as a consequence. We pray you provide for the people of our country. We pray you'd also bring healing to it and give wisdom to all those who must make decisions about how budgets are allocated in the uh, months and indeed years ahead. We thank you for Stephen Timms and for his role in the past of being a steward of the nation's finances and for his faithful witness today as a member of parliament and as a chair of select committee. We pray that you'd hear all our prayers for the sake of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. 